Hello and welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score. Uh, I'm your host, William Liu. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jessica Sharo. What's going on? Joe Wolfond. What up? Guys, the NBA playoffs in the first round has really given us so many... It's really blessed us with so many great storylines um, that we are just going to dive straight into. The first one being um, on Monday night, the OKC Thunder played a pivotal game against the Utah Jazz. There's a lot of hype coming into the game. You know, Russell Westbrook uh, vowing to shut down Ricky Rubio, which is just a very strange sentence to hear um, from the reigning MVP to shut down Ricky Rubio. Um, but the Utah Jazz, you know, Emerged victorious. Really, honestly, OKC came in with a lot of swagger, a lot of talk, and they couldn't back it up whatsoever. Uh, kind of a meltdown by OKC altogether. I'm playing some disgusting basketball, quite honestly. And uh, we'll just start here. Russell Westbrook was really, really bad. I mean, it's not even the poor shooting. It's the three assists. And the fact that the OKC Thunder as a team just didn't move the ball, didn't look coherent. And, you know, they were easily trounced um, by the Jazz. And you know, Wolfon, we'll start here. You were talking about the, the number of assists that the Thunder had that game, and it's just a shocking number. Yeah, they had 10 assists. Um, <laughs> For an which, entire game. Which is like, you know, you can take that number out of context, and honestly, that could have looked like any number of things. Like, you, you watch the Houston Rockets play, and they've had a lot of low assist games this year, but there is a method to what they do, and for the Thunder, I just don't get that sense at all. And... Uh, they just make life so easy, I think, for Utah because um, so many of their possessions are... And it's been like this all year long. And I think that's what's really disappointing is we saw this at the start of the year. They got up to a slow start. They hadn't figured out their offense. They ostensibly have all this talent. And you're thinking like, okay, they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure it out. They have these moments where, you know, they throttle the Warriors, they beat the Rockets twice, they beat the Raptors twice, like, Mm -hmm. all these moments where it seems like they're finally figuring it out and putting it together, and you expected it to kind of all come together at some point in the season, and especially in the playoffs, I think, was when everybody sort of expected that we would see the best version of this team, and it's just the same. Mm -hmm. And I think the Jazz deserve a lot of credit because their scheme has been really effective, I think, at just baiting the Thunder into jump shots. They're really hard to score on inside. They've done it like a made a concerted effort to take Steven Adams out of the game right. um, and focus in um, on just kind of eliminating him from pick and roll actions. And that's goaded Westbrook into taking like a lot, a lot of long pull up twos. And that's not effective offense for OKC. And they haven't done anything to counter that. They're not moving off of the ball. And it's such a stark contrast to watch how they play compared to how Utah plays, where mm-hmm. bodies are moving all the time. Right. They're moving the ball and they never give you a break. Like, right. and, and that's what was so funny to me about Westbrook saying that like he was going to come in and shut down Ricky Rubio, which is like not what the Thunder needed him to do. And like Ricky Rubio had a great game three, but at the end of the day, like he's not really what you need to be worried about. Like mm-hmm. you, you want to contain dribble penetration, obviously, but it was like Westbrook's problem has never been on ball defense. His problem has been off ball defense and, mm-hmm. and not helping. And there were like three or four different occasions where they basically they're trapping Ruby on the pick and roll and they need Westbrook to come from the weak side to tag the roll man. And he's not doing that. He's just standing in the corner and Gobert and favors are just rolling unimpeded to the hoop. And it just like at both ends of the floor, it just seemed like the thunder had no idea what they were doing, what they wanted to do. And they deservedly got trounced by by a team that knows who it is and has been playing much much better. And um, I don't know. I like. I'm not ready to bury the Thunder just yet, but they certainly don't look like they're long for this postseason. Yeah, they're look. 
the only reason this is or should be surprising is because of the name recognition and when you look at like the right. top end talent on paper. The Jazz were the vastly superior team to OKC for the last three months of the season. They were better than almost anybody in the league for the last three months other than Houston. Yeah. Um, and the only, you know, the only saving grace for the Thunder was that the way it worked out, they ended up with home court advantage in this series. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you rely on the fact that their top end talent is so far ahead of Utah's top end talent. But then you go through it and Westbrook, you know, Joe just talked about him. Will, you've already talked about him. He's being outplayed by Ricky Rubio. Full stop. Yeah. Um, numbers are actually comparable, but even beyond the numbers, he's been outplayed by Ricky Rubio. Mm-hmm. Russell Westbrook's turning the ball over more than 18% of his possessions. Yeah. That's an absurd number for a guy as ball dominant as he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carmelo Anthony's shooting 37% from the field and 23% from three. That somehow feels high for yeah, Carmelo. And well, at least he's making up for it with that great defensive right. play, though. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, he's been a net negative on both ends of the court. Again, are we really that surprised? He was a net negative all year. Like, people wanted him to be Olympic mellow, and he wasn't that all year, except mm-hmm. for, like, a two-week stretch. Um, so, not surprising. Paul George... Hasn't really been that bad, but he's also letting my guy Jinglin' Joe get in his head. Like, Joe Ingles was in his head yeah. on Monday night. And I think that just kind of goes to show you the way this series is going. Like, the Thunder are out of sorts. Um, and it these two teams have kind of been stark contrast to each other all year. You've got the Thunder, who have never clicked and have never really, like, put all their collective talent together. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, you know, all due respect to Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and even Ricky Rubio, but... Come on, like talent-wise, they're no match. But there have been a team all year, especially the second half of the year when Gobert came back, that they found a way to get maximized their collective talent, right? Mm-hmm. And be a product of the sum of their parts. And Quinn Snyder's done a great job. And everything the Jazz do has a purpose. You watch them on offense and the way they cut off the ball, the way guys move, the way guys right. screen, every single action they have has a purpose. And the Thunder are the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look... It's just really disappointing to see this out of OKC. I mean, I think there was always a hope that, like, yes, come crunch time, they will just do the right things and be the sum of their parts. It's just, it doesn't even have to be greater than the sum of their parts. They just have to be the sum of their parts. Like, Paul George is a phenomenal two-way player. Like, Russell Westbrook is the reigning MVP, right? Like, Carmelo Anthony as a third option should be pretty damn good. It's No one will say Carmelo's not talented. He just, you know, hasn't fit. And look... I'm just wondering, like, when you see a performance like that from OKC's perspective in Game 4, where, you know, your star player, Russell Westbrook, is just emotionally, like, just out of the game. The entire game, he's just wild, like, he's out of control. Like, you could put a lot of blame on the way, you know, Westbrook performed, not just in terms of, you know, in terms of how he shot the ball or how he turned over the ball or whatever. It's just how he approached that game mentally. It's just not right, like, for a leader to do that. Like, that's that's a really dis- disappointing performance from your leader. And also, like, you know, you can put some blame on Paul George a little bit. I mean, George shot the ball well. He led the, the, the Thunder in scoring with 32. But he was also just playing really bad defense. Like, you can't let Joe Ingles get 20 points on you. As much as we, you, you know, we all appreciate what Joe Ingles does, you shouldn't let a, a guy like Joe Ingles score 20 points on you. You shouldn't just stand around on a bunch of possessions when you're supposed to be a lockdown defender. You're not supposed to let Donovan Mitchell go at Corey Brewer. Like, th- that's that's really disappointing. If you're really a lockdown wing, right, and, and we know Paul George is, you need to take that assignment and not let Donovan Mitchell go off for 33 points because Corey Brewer can't guard him. And, you know, it, it just goes down the line. I mean, Melo obviously was just bad, but I think at this point we just all recognize that Melo doesn't fit in this role whatsoever, and he's just not necessarily um, a great piece for this team. But 
you know, you look up and down this roster, and you just you're just left wondering like who deserves the blame for this? Is it is it Westbrook? Is it uh, you know Billy Donovan for the way he's coached and failed to make adjustments? Like, is it Sam Presti for not bringing them enough pieces such that like people are saying you got to put Patrick Patterson in instead of Carmelo Anthony? That's not solving anything if that's your solution, right? So I mean, Cash, like who is who is at fault for all this? Oh, I mean, there's enough to go around, but even like you go deeper, like Stephen Adams, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Steven Adams has grabbed one offensive rebound combined in the last two games. Yeah. So even a guy like Steven Adams, you know, like that dependable, just like, well, he's going to do his job, and this is what he does. And this, Even he is technically not doing his job yeah. in this series. Like, top to bottom, the Thunder, I don't know. They're just, like I said, they're just out of sorts. I don't think any... Paul George is probably the closest thing to a guy who you could say has played up to his capabilities in this series. Right. But even him, the numbers are there, but defensively, he has not been himself other than no. game one. He really hasn't. Um yeah, I, again, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. I don't think Billy Donovan ever figured out how to get the most out of this roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I think you can go back to the summer. I think when they made the trade for Paul George, this roster was very interesting. And I think when they made that next move to get Melo, I, I thought from then this roster started to not make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and they've never really figured it out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much better they would have been realistically with Cantor and McDermott instead of Melo. Maybe they would have been a little bit better. But Honestly, again, it's you like... Might, they might need... Two pieces. Like, they might need two quarters where they need them, like, a 50-cent piece. You yeah. Know? Like, I think at the end of the day, they, they just have a few too many weaknesses that became, like, really easy to exploit. You know right. what I'm saying? And, like, they never figured out how to cover them up. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of that does have to do with Billy Donovan. Like, he hasn't been great at making adjustments. Um, and what, you know, I think really good coaches like Quinn Snyder and, like, Brad Stevens uh, have been able to do in, in the playoffs in years past is, like, find a way to hide, um, you know, your weakest players biggest weaknesses Mm -hmm. and like they like i think they've let mellow stay on the floor probably for too long um they've they've focused a little bit too much on their of their offense on like getting him isolations and they haven't found a way to you know protect him defensively like he's just getting picked on time and time again and um i I think there have been like a lot of instances where donovan probably just could have yanked him and gone with jeremy grant because at least i mean grant can shoot a little bit uh, and, and like, I don't think he was going to be any worse for their offense than Carmelo has been. And at least like he can defend, you know, he can be a really good help defender, mm-hmm. uh, and move his feet well enough to, to stay in front of guys on the perimeter. And Melo hasn't been able to do any of that. So, um, Westbrook is exploitable on defense as well. Like he's again, just like too much of a ball watcher. Um, yeah. and, uh, like didn't make much of an impact really like containing Donovan Mitchell the few times that he had to step up and take that assignment either. At, at the end of the day, I just think they're, they're like, too many weak spots on this roster and the jazz have been able to like pick at those weak spots and, and open up a lot of really big wounds. And I don't know where they go from here because like if you're Paul George <laughs> and you're looking at this situation, like it doesn't look too appealing, uh, you know, in the near, in the near or long term future. You know, Magic Johnson's smiling his big smile right now, watching all these uh, thunder losses and how Ma- ugly they are. Magic Johnson ready to catch another tampering charge. Uh, can we one one last uh, pr- moment of appreciation for Joe Ingles? Yeah, how about for this sure. for real? Because he, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's been playing great. This stat. So Ingles has played two thirds of the minutes through four, in this series so far. Okay, in the one hundred and twenty eight minutes Ingles has been on the court, Jazz plus twenty two point two per hundred possessions. In the sixty four minutes without him, minus nineteen point six. Wow. That's insane. 
Joe Ingles. On-off net rating of 41 points per 100 possessions. Joe Ingles on-off in this series. And now he lives in Paul George's head. He's jingling in his head. <laughs> and that, But that was like another perfect example of like the Thunder. I think something they did really well in game one was like just stay home on Joe Ingles. Like Paul George mm-hmm. really made an effort to take him out of the game. And they just abandoned that. Like they're just leaving him open in the corner. The guy yeah. shoots like 48% from the corners. Um, just, just like stick to your game plan and know what you're trying to do because... They're, they're just getting worked, and they're and you don't see any in-game adjustments whatsoever. And, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, like Cash said, there's enough blame to go around, and it starts at the top, but it, it really falls on everybody. Yeah, it's really disappointing. And at this point, you really have to, like, look, take a hard look at Russell Westbrook and what he's done in terms of leading a team. I mean, we'll talk more about Westbrook later on, but just, like, the fact that he lost last year in the first round wasn't that surprising, although it, it was still kind of disappointing to see him lose, but it was the argument was he had no teammates around him. This year, he's not even the best player in the series. He's not even the best player on his own team right now. Paul George is the, the one that's taking the bigger shots. And also, when you when you just lose your focus and control like that, why are you beefing with... Like, him beefing with Ripke Rubio is just like, first off, it's below him. Don't beef down like that. But also, like... It sets the tone for the rest of the team. Now Paul George is, like, getting into it with Joe Ingles. Now Carmelo is talking to, you know, Jay Crowder. Like, what? What are you doing? Like, just like, take control of your team. I mean, and, and you know, like, I feel bad a little bit for, for Billy Donovan because, like, his first year as a head coach was like, hey, listen, you just got to, um, you know, shepherd these stars. And it was, like, a great situation for him to walk into. And then one year into the job, he loses KD. Then it's all about getting Russell Westbrook a triple-double every night so he can get a, a sham MVP. And now this season, it's like, wow, he can't even coach the players on the team because it's, again, about Westbrook getting triple-doubles. And like, you know, he made very little effort to integrate these other players. They said from the beginning that they're like, wow, you know, we just got to follow, let Westbrook be Westbrook, and we'll pick up the pieces. And that's the whole inherent flaw when, when you build a team like this around Westbrook. You can't just pick up the pieces because he's not actually bringing enough things to the table to be the centerpiece. And and it's just disappointing to watch. And it's, it's coming apart right now. Yeah, look, I, I don't know how much of the blame you can put on Billy Donovan in that situation because – and I don't even know if it's – a question of tactics or if there's anything you can do to work around it. Because the fact sure. of the matter is you have a player who happens to be extremely talented and really devastating when he has the ball in his hands and basically a complete non-factor when he doesn't. And mm-hmm. is it on Donovan to figure out like how Westbrook can be more of a factor off of the ball? Is there a way to make that happen? Because I don't know, like, like he, he just doesn't seem to want to do it, have the ability to do it. Um, he, he's not cutting. He's not really like setting screens for other guys. He's not doing anything when he doesn't have the ball, except for like sitting and watching and waiting to get it back. And I, I think at the end of the day, like the only way to really maximize the offensive talent on a team that has Russell Westbrook on it is to have the ball in his hands pretty much all the time. So yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, what you would do about that to, to go about kind of like crafting a different identity for a team that has him on it. My, my last note on the matter is completely unrelated, but can someone get my guy Billy Donovan some chapstick? Someone pay attention. <laughs> oh, pay my attention. God. No, I'm serious. Everyone pay, getting flamed. Pay attention the next time the Thunder play. It's, it, this is like a weird observation I've had for years. Billy Donovan lips always obscenely chapped. Help my guy out. Oh, my God. He's going through some tough times <laughs> right now with this team. Jeez. Okay, so he's really in a crisis, man. Even the man's lips are not on point. Okay. Uh, moving on, in terms of another team that's uh, in a crisis right now, the Portland Trailblazers, um, they're already home. They're already chilling. They clean out their locker rooms and everything. Uh, they got swept. 
and this is not the first year in a row. I think we kind of forgot that they got swept last year as well in the first round. Um, I think Dame, the Blazers have now lost nine straight playoff games, which is just inconceivable. And um, you know, last year, at least you can understand, like they lost to the eventual champions, whatever. Like the Warriors, like they swept everybody in the in the Western Conference and lost one game in their entire run. So like, no one really worries too much about that. But then this season, the fact that they lost. Um, as the higher seed, whatever. I mean, they only had one more win than New Orleans. But still, the fact that they lost in this fashion where they just had no response whatsoever. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, the Pelicans aren't that talented of a team. We'll talk about the Pelicans in a second. But, like, the Pelicans aren't that great. Like, obviously, they had a lot of great performances and stuff. But the fact that the Blazers can even get one game off the Pelicans is just... You really have to take a hard look at this roster and, and where they go from here. Um Cash, what would you do with this roster if you were general manager Neil O'Shea? I mean, the easy answer is you cut a lot of these guys loose, but that's a lot easier said than done because Neil O'Shea has hamstrung himself and this franchise by some of the just ridiculous amount of money he tossed out in the summer of 2016. Like, you look at this roster, um, the two out of their role players, the two guys that actually do make an impact are Ed Davis and Al Farouk Aminu. Ed Davis is a free agent this summer. Aminu is a free agent next summer. You look at their other role players, the guys that don't really give them anything. Mm-hmm. Evan Turner, Mo Harkless, Myers Leonard. $41 million combined to those guys two years from now. Yeah. So, like, it's easy to say I do this, I do that. But from, a like, a cap management standpoint, they have a lot of um, stumbling blocks in their way that they put there themselves. Neil O'Shea's put there himself. Look, they've got a good starting point with Lillard and McCollum. Obviously, a lot of franchises would kill to have those two guys as, like, your building blocks. Right. But... Again, he's just really hamstrung himself in terms of um, the contracts that he's put on this team. That there's just no answer for it. Like they're not tradable assets. It's not mm-hmm. like any of these guys have many redeeming qualities that you can think, oh, maybe a team will want this. Like there's just nothing there. The weird thing with Portland is the way their offense regressed this year. Because if there's one thing you could count on from the Blazers in the last few years, it's that they could score and they could score efficiently. Right. And they got better in the middle of the season after a really bad start. But you look at that roster, and especially in a guard-dominated NBA, when Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum are your guards. The rank 16th in offense, middle of the pack. That's not good enough. And yeah. their defense got a lot better this year. They were a top 10 defense. But still, if you, there was something just not right there mm-hmm. all year. But even if you go back now a few years, their only playoff series victory in the post-Aldridge era was when the Clippers suffered those injuries in the first round. You remember when Blake Griffin and, I believe, Chris Paul both got hurt in the first round. Yeah. And they were up 2-1, and then Portland came back to win that series. So really, if it wasn't for the Clippers getting injured that year, this Blazers core has proven they're not good enough to get out of the first round in the West. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. Um, I also think like the idea of trading one of Dame or CJ is kind of insane, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about doing that. Like at the end of the day, like that—that's what you want is like to have high-end talent. And again, I, I understand that. Maybe it's not an ideal fit defensively. Like, you know, that, that backcourt is maybe always going to struggle a little bit. But this team was a top 10 defense all year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they figured out a scheme that worked at that end of the floor. And like Cash said, that ultimately wasn't the problem. The problem was that their offense regressed as badly as it did. And ultimately, like, for this team moving forward, it's going to be about how they're able to fill the roster out around those two guys. Not about whether, you know, they can flip one of them for a piece that fits better. Because I don't think that that player or that trade is out there. Mm-hmm. Um I think they they just need to find a way to maximize the talent around them. And, like, you know, Yusuf Nurkic is going to be a free agent this offseason. I don't know what kind of offer he's going to command. I don't imagine that it's going to be that 
ludicrous, <laughs> like, uh, you know, he, or that lucrative. Like, he's not going to, I don't think he's going to command a huge offer on the open market. Right. Um, so I think that the Blazers will have a pretty good chance to retain him for a reasonable price point. And I think they should because Nurkic was really good at the defensive end of the floor this season. He did not have a great playoff series. They, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much of this to put on the team and how much of it to put on Nurkic, but they didn't really figure out how to maximize him at the offensive end. He did not have a good offensive season. And I think they had just like too many possessions that wound up with him kind of holding the ball like 10 or 12 feet from the basket and um, not really knowing what to do with it. But he's also like a, a underrated passer, I mm-hmm. think. And, and I definitely think there are ways that they can figure out to involve him more in the offense that um, open things up a little bit. So it's not so guard heavy. Uh, because he is, like, I, I think a pretty good playmaker. And I, I just don't know. Like, I, I think that, that this is still, like, a better team than what they showed in that series against the Pelicans. Um, it turned out to be, I think, you know, in part a pretty bad matchup for them. Mm-hmm. And in part, they just didn't play well. And, and that happens. Like, if you look at the shot profile that they generated in that series, it was really good. Like, the, the shot quality... Um, and, and the number of like open threes that they were generating, it was all like really, really good across the board. The problem is it was like the people who are taking those shots are not necessarily their best players because the ball is being forced out of those guys' hands. So what do you do with that? You know, do you decide that you need better role players who are going to be more capable of hitting shots? Do you trust the role players you have? And that like, you know, a year later, you know, the situation could be completely different. They knock down those shots and maybe they win this series. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think there is a tendency to like overreact to what happens in a really small sample size. Mm-hmm. Not that playoff series can't expose weaknesses and, you know, tell you something about a team that you might not have learned otherwise, but I also think there's a tendency to overreact um, and, and lose sight of the big picture, which is that this is still a good team and a team, I think, that is, like, capable of at least going to the second round and maybe, you know, getting a couple breaks that get them in the conference finals. Mm-hmm. You know, is it worth blowing up the team and going in a completely different direction just because you had one bad playoff series? I mean, the, the team that people compare this team to is like the 2015 Toronto Raptors who got swept out of, out of the first round by the Washington Wizards. Mm-hmm. Everyone was calling for them to blow up that team, fire Dwayne Casey. They didn't, and the next year they were in the conference finals. So I think there are workarounds that you can find that don't involve completely overhauling the roster. But here's my thing with the, with the Blazers, right? Like, it's it's about what your intentions are as a franchise. Are you trying to win a Are you trying to win a championship, or are you just trying to have a great team and even just a good team? Really, it's not even a great team. Just are you trying to have a good team, come back year after year, make the playoffs, get bounced in the first, maybe at best the second round, and that's your season? Like that's that's the ceiling of this team. It's it's been it's been pretty clear, and they're at a point now where they have a really rich owner, right? Like Paul Allen is even among NBA owners very very well off. And he's shown a propensity to spend a lot of money and spend to contend. And that's great. But it's it's going to be even hard to sell him after two straight first-round sweeps to be like, hey, we need to go into the luxury tax to retain Yusuf Nurkic. We need to retain Ed Davis because he was a big player for us this year. He was actually a really important part of our defense. And now he's going to become a free agent. He's going to get more money. Like, it's just hard to, to really make that case, even to a guy like Paul Allen. And... You know, there's just something does have to change with this team. Like, even if you bring back the same roster, which based on, you know, what Cash, what you said, with like all the expensive contracts to Myers Leonard, which didn't even make sense at the time. Why would you sign Myers Leonard to that contract? But like, or even Evan Turner. Evan Turner's agent was apparently like laughing about it and stuff like that. But like, you know, like, even if you have, if the roster is unworkable, you don't have any prospects beyond, I guess, Zach Collins. Like, all right. 
at least change the coach or do something, right? And, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Terry Stotts got the axe. It's not quite fair because I think Terry Stotts has proven to be a pretty good coach, and he's had great offenses, and now he's had a really good defense this year. Um, but, you know, just just a new voice in the room. They, they got to do something because it's going to be hard to sell that fan base to just be like, hey, we're doing the same thing again. It's it's Damon Lillard. Or sorry, it's, it's Damon and CJ. Um, they're going to shoot the ball like, you know, they're just going to take turns running the offense. They don't really quite play well together. They have defensive issues in that backcourt that is just so hard to work around with the rest of the pieces. And also, we still don't have a number three score. Like, that's one of the big issues that they've exposed in the series. Dame shot 35% from the field and hadn't... And the reason for that is because, you know, the Pelicans were trapping him really hard. And he admitted it. He was like, they're they're being more aggressive than ever. I've never seen this type of defense. But the thing is, if you have two players on you, you should be able to flip that into opportunities for your teammates. He had 19 total assists in the series as compared to 16 turnovers, right? That shows you two things. One, Dame didn't handle the pressure well. And two, they don't have a third score that can capitalize on the extra pressure. And, like, Nurkic is supposed to be that. Nurkic got outscored in this series by Al Farouk Aminu. So there's a lot of questions with this with this roster. I think they probably swap up the GM. Like, honestly, I don't think O'Shea, like... He's going to – I don't think it's going to be palatable for him to, like, continue doing this. And if you bring in a new GM, chances are going to bring in a new coach. So, I think you could expect a lot of changes in, in Portland. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think I think because of how hard it will be to make changes with the roster, if you don't want to get rid of one of CJ or Dame, it's hard to do anything with this roster just because of the contracts they've bloated themselves with. So, if they want to just change for the sake of change because they think things are getting stale, the mm-hmm. easiest thing to do is, is move on from Terry Stotts and or – Neil O'Shea. Yeah. I think, yeah, at the end of the day, that 2016 summer is really what damned this team, right? And (laughs) So many bad contracts. (laughs) Nurkic failed, to me, to live up to... I mean, he had a great uh, back half of the year last year after they traded for him. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, offensively, I think he was a major disappointment. And and to what you were saying, Will, I think they could really benefit from a big man or a four, whoever it is, who can play four on three and make a play four on three once one of Dame or CJ is taken out of the play. Yeah. And Nurkic, for whatever reason, proved he couldn't do that, which is weird because his skill set, he should be able to do that. He emerged yeah. as a great rim protector and kind of regressed offensively. Very weird year for him. It is a really weird year for him. And it, honestly, it was a weird year for the Blazers. Like, I mean, we think of the Blazers as this great offense. They finished 30th in assists. And because, like... Pretty much the offense just became more and more centered around CJ and Dame when they really should have diversified and used the season to figure out other options. But pretty much every play down the floor is just some sort of high pick and roll, and they trap. Their other players can't score. So um, I don't know. The, the Blazers just look like a flawed team. I think they'll be solid next year. They bring back the same roster, but you're going to have the same ceiling. Um, moving on, the team that you know swept – um, the the Blazers was the New Orleans Pelicans, who is like you know like everyone's rooting for the the Pelicans really because they've had so much hard luck over the years with injuries and everything like that, and you know we all want to see Anthony Davis have a great playoff moment. I mean, he finally got his first playoff win and then he got his first playoff sweep, um, and now they're gonna play. I mean, let's be real, they're gonna play Golden State in the next round. It's, the Spurs are not coming back. I mean, it's great to see Manu doing what he does, um, you know, making everyone feel. Um, happy and warm inside that this really, really old man could still get in old man layups. But, like, seriously, Manu, like, it, it, it's, you know, the series is going to go to Golden State eventually. Um, do you think the Pelicans, based on how good they looked in the first round, Wolfon, like, do you think they can throw an actual scare into the Warriors, especially since apparently Steph is not going to come back until game three of the second round? 100%. Um, I don't know that they can win that series, but put a scare in them, yeah, for sure. Like, 
Um, if you it, like, honestly, Davis has always given them problems. They don't always. really have anybody to stop him. Um, and we've said this before, but basically, their their true bigs are not especially good. Um, they thrive when they play, you know, guys like when they play Durant or when they play Draymond at center. And I don't know what those guys are going to be able to do against AD. Like, I think AD has a chance to, again, have another really, really big series. And then, you know, you have Holiday, who's really having, like, a breakout postseason, who is just brimming with confidence offensively. And, again, like, I think, you know, like, having that option and, like, that two-man game between them with Miritich spacing out around, you know, like, a Holiday Davis pick and roll, um, I think has really just opened up their offense. Like, they're... Their offense was already good, like, you know, say when, when Boogie was healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they have just, like, a little bit more of a versatile attack right now. And, and what that's done also is, like, give them way more sort of flexibility defensively. Like, they move around so much quicker. Miritich was unbelievable defensively yeah. in that series against the Blazers. And they don't have a great option to guard Durant. I think that's where they're going to start, like, really running into problems. Um, Durant is is going to give them a hard time, and I don't know. Maybe maybe like you'll see Davis switched onto him um, for a bunch of possessions, um, and I'm really interested to see how that goes. But uh, I think the Warriors are going to have the more talented team, even with Steph out. But I like the way that this Pelicans team fits together. I feel like they've really stumbled upon a formula that's working well for them, and the fact that the Warriors like without Steph there, like they don't actually have a ton of shooting. Right. And I think that'll just give the Pelicans like the, the ability to kind of like pack the paint um, and make it really difficult for the Warriors to, um, you know, kind of run anything sort of inside out. Like their offense is so much different without Steph there. They don't scramble defenses like with that, that high pick and roll because Durant just doesn't incite that same kind of fear. They can stay home a little bit more, like kind of try and keep Clay Thompson out of the game. Like maybe you have Drew shadowing Clay Thompson, um, because you don't really have to have him on Quinn Cook, say. You right. know, you don't have to have to like use him on a lead ball handler. You can kind of have him like playing off the ball, which he's also really good at. Um, and then maybe have like have like Rondo haranguing a ball handler. I think they could have a lot of success defensively and uh, definitely like stay in this series at least for six games. Yeah, that, I think the same thing. I think especially without staff, I think like a Holiday, Rondo, Moore, Miritich, Davis. I think that unit can hang with the Warriors without Steph. I really do. And then, yeah. look, even without Steph, to be able to to truly scare them or maybe push it seven or maybe beat them, I don't know, it'd be crazy. But you'd have to catch lightning in a bottle, right? Like, yeah. you'd need the Warriors to play well below their capabilities and the, and the Pelicans would have to play far above their expectations. But, you know, you the way the Pelicans roster is built is somewhat interesting in terms of matching up with the Warriors. Like, even... They've got a lot of these role players that, don't get me wrong, they're not impact players, Mm -hmm. but, you know, they're switchable defenders who can switch on the perimeter. Like, even guys like Ian Clark, Darius Miller, like, not not big names, but, Mm -hmm. again, you need to catch lightning in a bottle. In the last series, when they swept the Blazers, like, uh, Ian Clark, Solomon Hill, Darius Miller combined to shoot 12 of 24 from deep in the four games. Like, those are the kinds of things you're going to need if they have a chance against the Warriors. Like, if those kind of role players can do their jobs defensively, switching on the perimeter and knock down threes... Mm -hmm. And then everyone else just gives you what you need from them. They don't have to go nuts. But if Brow is Brow, if Meritich is the guy he's been all year, if Drew Holiday is the two-way player he usually is, if Rondo's playoff Rondo, and you have those role players just doing what they do and get maybe catching a little bit of fire from deep, mm-hmm. then they have a shot. Now, that's a lot of ifs, but that, the thing is, is that's, the, that's what you're dealing with when it comes to the Warriors, right? 
Yeah, you, of course. You, there's a lot of ifs that go into it. Is if this happens and if they don't have Steph, then they got a shot. Um, so yeah, I think the Pelicans can take a couple games off them, put a scare in them. And honestly, I respect what the Pelicans have done enough that I'm going to say, even if Steph plays, I think they can take a game. I really do. Yeah, look, um, I think, yeah, we have to give a little bit more credit to the Warriors in the, in, from the perspective of, like, you know, even without even without Steph, like, they, they still are a really cohesive team in the, in the playoffs. Like, you just see it. Like, Andre Godala and Tr- Traymond Green have, like, taken their games to another level. Their defensive intensity is way higher than it was in the regular season. That comes with experience, right? Like, they know what it takes and how to pace themselves at this point, having made three straight finals runs, that this one, you know, yeah, Draymond and, and Iguodala especially, they kind of coasted for most of the regular season. They have another level to hit, and they've hit that level. Um, and, you know, I think those players are going to be really important in this series because you need that strong wing defender, um, you know, either, you know, Clay or Iguodala on Drew Holiday. Um, to sort of neutralize him. And then also, like, Anthony Davis is just so effective. I mean, look, even in 2015, right, when the Warriors won the championship, they had Andrew Bogut at that time, who was actually really good defensively, and he was getting a lot of, you know, just, like, all-defense hype and stuff like that. And his numbers were great. He just didn't play enough minutes. Um, But even in that – and they had, you know, Draymond, like, healthier and everything else like that. AD averaged 31 points, 11 rebounds, 3 blocks on 54% shooting in that series. And, like, all the games were pretty close. Like, you remember that, like, Steph Curry crazy 3 in the corner over AD? I mean, like, you know, they barely got past that that, that Pelicans team even back then. And that was without, you know, guys like uh, Miritich and sort of even Rondo or whatever. But ultimately, I think the Warriors are just – they have so much firepower. And I think defensively, they're going to be a lot better defensively against the, the, the Pelicans – that the Blazers just couldn't offer resistance to. Like, there was nobody that could guard Drew Holiday. And there was just so many defensive, um, you know, weaknesses with Dame, with CJ, that they could always exploit um, that are not there with the Warriors. Like, when Sean Livingston comes in, that's another good defender that comes in. Um, you know, like, the, the Warriors are just so solid. It's just really they're a little bit short on the front court, obviously. And, of course, Anthony Davis will, will, will attack them or whatever, but if everyone, if the Warriors can stay at home against everyone else and sort of put the clamps on Drew Holiday, which easier said than done, but, I mean, we've seen them beat tougher opponents than this, uh, and with Steph coming back, I mean, Steph's really only taking this long because, you know, because he, he can, basically, yeah. right? Because <laughs> they're playing the Spurs in the first round, but I feel like if Steph, like, Steph's fairly close that he won't miss more than two games of the series. I think... There might just be, even though they're like obviously going to scout and like be prepared for this Pelicans team, I feel like there might be a shock to the system going from defending the Spurs to defending the Pelicans because yeah. the Spurs' offense is just so staid and like, uh, you know, vanilla, and they just have like so few weapons to actually hurt you with, and so much of it resol- revolves around just Lamarcus holding the ball in the post. Um, they definitely ramped up their defensive intensity and played a great. I mean, whatever. It's not over yet, uh, mm-hmm. but have played a great. Uh, you know, defensive first round series, but it's going to be a completely different animal uh, trying to guard the Pelicans who are so much more dynamic and have so many more options. And uh, I think, I mean, you know, they have a seven footer who can put the ball on the floor, who can shoot it, uh, who's just probably like the the best dive man in the game. Um, And, you know, realistically, like there, there are ways that they are going to be able to be exploited and that the, the pelicans are going to be able to hurt them mm-hmm. and they're going to have to find solutions i think in a way that they haven't really had to coming into the spurs series i think they knew what they wanted to do coming into the spurs series um and they've executed that game plan defensively you know pretty much to perfection 
and have have just like more or less limited what everybody around Aldridge has been able to do. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just not going to be able to do that. You know, like they yeah, can focus in their energy on taking holiday out of the game. They can focus on taking AD out of the game. But at the end of the day, the Pelicans like have a lot of different weapons and a more versatile attack that I think is going to give them a lot more problems. And, and they're going to have to figure out more stuff on the fly, which obviously they're the warriors. Like they're, they're really good at doing that and they're going to figure it out. But that's why I think it's going to be a series rather than just a warriors romp. Yeah, I think the biggest issue is just they don't have a natural defender for KD. Um, obviously, that wasn't an issue in the Blazers series because they only have those two little guards. But like when you have KD out there, it's just it's not like Meritrius can be guarding KD much. It's not like because you got to guard him on the ball too, right? And like if the Pelicans have one major weakness, it's just that like they don't have that big wing defender. Um, like they might try Rondo or somebody on KD and. Rondo, I guess, you know, has had some success against KD in the past, but it's not like a like a bankable solution to put Rajon Rondo on KD for the whole series. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing, I mean, we're running a little bit short on time, but just like the fact that DeMarcus Cousins has been absent during this whole run and they've made this huge run is a big, big sort of question mark because, you know, you could argue that in some of these series, like if, if the Cousins was in this series and they could constantly put one of Cousins or Davis at five, like even the... Sp- like, I don't know, like, Davis is only setting, like, three, four minutes a game right now, but, like, in those backup minutes, like, to have Cousins out there to just wreak havoc, that would be crazy, but um, it's also, you know, kind of interesting that they they played so well, better than they have when they had Boogie, um, you know, w- w- uh, so it, when he's a free agent this summer, I, I don't know if they offer him the max because, you know, who knows? Maybe, you, maybe you'd rather have Miritich. It's weird, right? I, I think the... Perfect scenario, well, not perfect for Boogie, obviously, but perfect scenario for the Pelicans, and I think Zach Lowe reported it today, too, that it was something that was talked about within the Pelicans. It was perhaps like a two-year deal, whether it's the max or not at two years, but look, the Pelicans are pretty it's much capped hard to, out. That's going to be hard to sell. It is. The Pelicans are pretty much capped out for the next couple of years anyway, so it's not like you know, not signing Boogie right now would allow them to go do all these other things, um, but maybe if the, the market's tepid on Boogie because of his injury uh the injury he's coming off of and his polarizing history. Maybe if you can get him for like two years, then you do. I still think, look, as promising as everything the Pelicans have done this spring has been, I still think this is a small market, small market team uh, with a history, frankly, of poor asset management. Let's be real. Yeah. And you just, I still don't think you can let a talent like Boogie walk for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But I I agree. I think like short term deal is like the best option. And honestly, if, Boogie doesn't want that. Like, I don't know what kind of options he's going to have on the market, right? Like, how oh, the Knicks got cap room? Do, do they though? Like, do they have max cap room? I don't. <laughs> you know, if they if, if Boogie wants to sign with the Knicks, the Knicks are moving right. heaven and earth to get Boogie on a max contract. Yeah, I and guess bumping out Kate and Chris Stapps or whatever. <laughs> um, and then you you know you have like the Lakers looming if sure, they yeah, if yeah. they whiff on Paul George and or LeBron, um, they'll have cap room and and that's another potential landing spot for him, but. Um, I don't know, man. Does he really want to go to another dysfunctional franchise where he's going to put up numbers and miss the playoffs year right. after year? Like, I feel like he's actually found himself in a pretty good situation. Mm-hmm. Him and AD seem to get along really, really well. Yeah, AD and they already were, said he wants, he expects to see DeMarcus back. Yeah, and they were developing like a pretty nice on-court chemistry too before he sure. went down. Um, they've really unlocked something without Boogie, and I'd be really interested to see how they kind of work him back in after all this mm-hmm. um, because I think they've proven that like they would have to do a better job, I think, of staggering those two guys' minutes 
where more often um, one of them is like the lone big on the floor mm-hmm. because I think like Davis is just so much more effective in right. that role and Holiday has been so much more effective because he was spending more time on the ball. Like Boogie was really monopolizing a lot of possessions and as much as he's extremely skilled for a guy his size, is a really good passer, can put the ball on the floor and just is really hard to stop when he's barreling to the rim. He was also just turning the ball over a ton. Right. And, you know, I, I know he likes to fancy himself like a point center. He's capable of playing that role. But at the end of the day, he was not like super efficient doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just like a lot of the time where he, he was putting his head down and getting stripped on his way to the rim or running into offensive fouls. Um, and him and Davis, I think, were just like a little bit in each other's space when they were on the floor together. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think Miritich has been a bit of a better fit because he doesn't need to be involved in the central action as much. He can right, kind of, of space course. it out um, and shoot it from three. And he was, he's also just been like way more mobile and better defensively than Cousins was. Cousins was really brutal defensively, I thought, um, this season. So there are a lot of different wrinkles where I feel like, um, you know, it would be on Alvin Gentry to, to kind of figure out how to work Boogie back in without disrupting this incredible chemistry they developed in the wake of his injury. But I think that's probably the best situation for him. And I agree with Cash. Like, from an asset management perspective, I don't think you can let him walk. So maybe, you know, you come up from two years, you go to something like three years, 90 million, three years, 100. Yeah, I think that's probably the one that makes the most sense. You could kind of save face with that. And plus, I think, you know, the fit issue, like, I don't think it's going to be that big of an issue in the first year of that contract because Boogie's still going to be coming off injury. So chances are pretty good. They're probably limited his minutes to around 30 and not like the 38 that he was playing before he got hurt. So. You know, if they do that, then maybe it's not as much of an issue. And if you can find a, a way to add Boogie instead of just take Boogie and replace a lot of the other players, then this team, I think, is more formidable. Anyway, we talked a lot about the Western Conference. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. And in our Make or Miss segment, we're going to devote that entirely to the Eastern Conference minus one bullet point. We got, we got one bullet point for the West. But uh, we're going to take a quick break right here and come back. Welcome back to the second half of Pound the Rock. Um, as always, please support the podcast by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. We are now up on Google Play. Shout out to our man Donnie for helping us out with that one. Um, you know, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. I mean, wherever you consume podcasts, we're going to be there. Please find us. Please support the podcast. We're going to move into the make or miss segment. Uh, and like I said earlier, we're going to focus mostly on the Eastern Conference. And we'll start here. With the series that we all thought was wrapped up but came undone, the Washington Wizards have won the last two games to tie the series against the Toronto Raptors. And so let me ask you this. Make her miss. The Wizards have solved the Raptors by backing off defensively against Kyle I'm going to say miss. Okay. Um, look, I think, you know, it's very cliche, but the playoffs, the postseason is about adjustments and counters. And I think the Wizards probably t- uh, it took Scott Brooks one game too long to realize that the trapping of Lowry and DeMar is not going to work this year because they move the ball well and they've got capable playmakers and shooters outside the roster. Um, and now I think it took the Raptors probably a game too long to figure out how to deal with that. But mm-hmm. I, still, I still think the Raptors are the better overall team with two out of a potential three games in Toronto where they had the best home record in the league tied with Houston. So, no, I don't think the Wizards have solved them. And, you know, maybe it, it was probably a little bit of fool's gold too going into Washington thinking the Raptors were going to sweep. Or maybe even to get one. Like, the Wizards have now won eight straight home games in the playoffs. Like, they are very yeah. good at home in the playoffs. Wall and Beal have always been postseason performers. Gortat kind of found his groove again. The Wizards were really good for two games. The Raptors fell apart down the stretch of game four. But I think to say they've solved them is a little bit much. 
I'll go miss as well, but a, a narrow miss, kind of like an in and out sort of miss. You know, right. one that really just spills out. Uh, I think solve is too strong a word, but I do think they figured some things out. Um, and definitely, you know, kind of uh, coaxing Demar into playing one on one by dropping back or or outright switching as opposed to trapping like they were early in the series was like definitely the right way to go. Um, and at the other end of the floor, I think just involving Bradley Beal more in their offense has really opened some things up, and they're running more actions for him off of the ball, screening for him. Um, like Marcin Gortat's had a couple of really nice flare screens that opened him up for three-point attempts. The moving uh, in the, screens, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. great He's moving a, screens. Great, great moving He's screens. He's a walking moving screen. <laughs> yes, but, he's uh, definitely walking on the screens, yes. <laughs> um, look, I, I mean, Gortat's been doing that for years and years, so yeah. um, credit to him, I guess, for nailing it down to a science uh, and managing to do that uh, without getting called. But um, Beal was fantastic in the second half of that uh, of that Game 4 win. And honestly, just like getting John Wall going downhill is always going to be super, super hard to stop. And in that second half, they were running off of every single Raptors miss. Yeah. And the Raptors kind of shot themselves in the foot in that game by having a lot of turnovers, which I think is like probably not something you necessarily expect to carry over. The Raptors are usually a team that takes very good care of the ball, which is why I don't think that they've solved them necessarily, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the opportunities they got in the open floor were a result of the Raptors being uncharacteristically sloppy. Mm-hmm. But... Um, the Wizards know how to play to their strengths, and I think they've figured some things out in this series that, that is really going to make it tough uh, for the Raptors to close it out. I, I, I'm still leaning that way, and I think they're going to be able to do it. Um, I still think they're the better team, but um, the Wizards have gotten back in the series. It's not an accident that they've gotten back in the series, and uh, I, I think it's going to be a battle the next two or maybe three games. Yeah, definitely it was going to be a battle. Uh, luckily, the Raptors have home court in their, in their favor so that they might not necessarily blow a first-round series. But if they blow this first-round series after the season they had, man, they got a, they got a lot of questions to answer. But, um, yeah, I mean, as long as the Raptors still have home court, I think home court's been a, such a big factor in this series. Like, you look at how Kelly Oubre has performed in Washington versus in Toronto or how um, CJ Miles and Serge Ibaka have played. Uh, they were phenomenals in game one and two. And, Games three and four, they were complete no-shows. So I, I think home court's going to factor in a lot for the Raptors. But ultimately, um, yeah, the Wizards have made the right adjustment. I think that I think that's where um, this question really uh, tried to hint at. Anyway, next one. Make or miss. LeBron James needs more help. Yeah, that's a definite make. I think anybody watching the Cavs can be able to say that with confidence. Um, this is nothing revelatory, obviously. But, like, you can really tell how much he's missed Kyrie Irving. He looks exhausted, yeah. and you you know we're not really used to seeing LeBron look super tired. Like we see him look lazy in the regular season a lot of the time, and we kind of just assume that that's him preserving energy for the playoffs. But now we're in the playoffs when the Cavs are supposed to be flipping the switch, and LeBron still looks totally gassed. Yeah. He's not giving much of an effort at the defensive end, and there are the offensive possessions that go by where he just doesn't seem like he's able to do that much. He's not really able to turn the corner against Bojan Bogdanovic, a, a guy who I think most people would assume that he would own in a one-on-one matchup. And there are just like too many possessions where he's catching the ball kind of like at the three-point line. And, you know, it's like he's trying to take Bogdanovic into the post from there. But when he's starting the possession from that far away, he's not, you know, he doesn't have the energy to work himself in a deep post position from the start. That makes it really easy for the Pacers' defense to kind of help and recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've had a lot of success uh, guarding Cleveland's offense because the Cavs just don't have a secondary creator. So everything has to run through LeBron, and it's wearing him down, and it's making Cleveland's offense way more predictable. And, I, I mean, you know, 
like the like like the guys who are supposed to be helping him out. For the most part, they're like spot up shooters, right? Yeah, they're specialists. And and that's not enough. And Kevin Love, I guess, is a guy who can make plays, but he's more of a guy who's who's kind of gonna like make passes from the elbow, and not a guy who's gonna put the ball on the floor and make something from nothing the way that someone like Kyrie could. And I, I think it's clear that LeBron needs that. You know, the the closest thing they have to that is Jordan Clarkson. Yeah, and Jordan and, Clarkson's and, very unreliable. Yeah. So yeah, make. Yeah, the easiest make maybe we've ever had on make or miss. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, it's just there's no one on this roster outside of LeBron James as a like, and you know George Hill. Oh, first of all, George Hill is hurt, but yeah. George Hill, George Hill hurt. Wow, I, no one would could, could have seen <laughs> but that like, coming. Even George Hill, like you know, respect him for what he is, solid two way point guard at his best. Yeah. Guys like Rod- Rodney Hood's been a no show in this series. Completely no show. Like, he looks shook as hell, which is weird because he was part of a playoff run with the Jazz last year. So it's weird that he looks right, like, yeah. so out of his element. Uh, Clarkson's been bad. Like they don't have anyone, and obviously it's unfair to compare those guys to Kyrie Irving because there's not many of those kind of players. But when LeBron, when the ball's not in LeBron's hand, or when LeBron's not on the court for the few minutes that that happens, like they, because of no one that you can put the ball in their hand and they can make a play off the dribble and really scare the Pacers. Yeah, and that is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. LeBron needs more help, man. Especially at, at his age, like have, after playing 82 games for the first time in his career after leading the league in minutes per game for the second straight season LeBron just looks tired there is no like next year for him to immediately hit especially if everyone else around him is also bricking like open jumpers and stuff so um yeah he, he needs more I mean we're gonna need like he's gonna need like a J.R. Smith explosion to really help him here or there because someone's gotta just go off in order for LeBron to uh to carry this team through because it's like it's, it's really exhausting for him to do this and this is only the first round I mean LeBron's He's trying to make another finals run. If you're this tired in the first round, I don't know how you're going to survive into June. So it's a it's a big concern. Next one, make or miss. Lance Stevenson's only role in this series is to bait LeBron into an ejection. And not necessarily his only role, but his only goal. All right, listen. Yeah. Lance Stevenson, I'm going to put this very bluntly, is a mm-hmm. waste of space on an NBA court. Wow. Straight up. Listen, Lance Stevenson's great for entertainment. You know, as a fan watching it, I love watching it because he does add entertainment value yes. to the game. But from a pure basketball standpoint, this guy is an absolute waste of space. He doesn't do anything at an above-average NBA level. Wow. He can't shoot. Seriously. Look mm. at his numbers. He can't shoot. Okay, he can put the ball on the floor, but he often makes ridiculous decisions when he does. Like, talent-wise, Everything he, he does that. is ridiculous. Right. So, he makes poor decisions with the ball in his hands. He can't shoot. Hasn't really been able to shoot in four years. Yeah. He's not a good defender. You'll see, like, one or two possessions here and there. You're like, oh, look at Lance, like, really doggedly getting after that guy. But overall, he is not a good defender. He provides no tangible value on an NBA court. He's a mm-hmm. waste of space. Wow. I don't know what his role in this series is. So you're calling that a make, that he is there just to bait LeBron into, sure. into an yeah. action? Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't I don't entirely agree with that. I think like Lance is definitely capable of doing some things. Um he's got a pretty he's got a pretty decent handle, even though it looks insane sometimes. Herky-jerky. Really herky jerky, really unpredictable, and it's shockingly effective. Like he's really able to get into the paint with an alarming frequency, and he's a pretty decent finisher around the rim. And he's not a bad passer. He he's still a passable defender. Yeah. Um I would not go so far as to call him a waste of space. He is definitely the kind of player who you live and die by in the sense that, like, he was going to do some things. He's in his own Well, then world, you better man. be a cat because you need, like, nine <laughs> lives if you're living and dying with Lance Stevenson. Okay, but, but like, you know, he, he'll do some things that, like, you know, you'll scratch your head or just, like, pound your head onto a desk repeatedly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um 
but he'll also do some things that like give you some value. And one of those things, honestly, is like getting under LeBron's skin. And like he's tried for so so many years to do that. Seriously, man, hasn't been able to do it. Like it's all been kind of for naught, and it's all been a bit of a sideshow. LeBron hasn't played into that. And yeah. then we see in Game Four, he baits LeBron into a technical foul with the Pacers up two with like six minutes left in yeah. the game that could have that could have sent Cleveland home down three one. And LeBron picks up a tech. So. I mean, there's a certain value to that. There is a value um, to that for sure for the Pacers. I mean, first off, just to give Pacers fans confidence against LeBron. Yeah. Realistically, Pacers fans shouldn't have confidence against LeBron because no. they've been beaten so often by him. But not but just Lance. Pacers fans. Like, probably, like, yeah. the rest of the Pacers team. Exactly. You, know, yeah. you, you have a guy who, you know, whatever his talent level and whatever he's actually giving you, uh, you know, in terms of tangible basketball skill mm-hmm. – is clearly unafraid of LeBron and not afraid to like butt heads with him. And <laughs> literally get, butt heads and, with and, him <laughs> and, and, and get up in his ear. Literally, um, you know, like it. it I, I think that's probably like helpful for the other guys on the Pacers, as much as they might think Lance is ridiculous, which uh-huh. he is. Um, at least you know that means that nobody else on the Pacers has to do that. Nobody else has to go and like step to LeBron and try and get under his skin. Exactly. And and Lance is the kind of guy who will take that defensive assignment, and you know he might just like pick up some cheap fouls. Um, and just like do some stuff that isn't actually useful. Um, but all that sort of pestering and nagging and grabbing and clutching, um, the stuff that, does, that Lance does over the course of a game, I mean, that's got to get under your skin at a certain point in time. Oh, for right? sure, for sure. And, and the fact that there's no back down there and that Lance clearly relishes the role of heel that, that he plays every spring um, is, uh, I don't know, I think there is some value there. Yeah, for sure. I, I, think, I think at this point, LeBron has enough. Um, to pull out a restraining order against Lance, <laughs> yeah. But seriously, uh, man, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of incredible to watch a man singularly have just one goal in mind, which is just to troll LeBron every single time they play. And yeah. it worked for Draymond, though, you know, like or sorry, that was I was thinking the other way around. It worked for LeBron when he when he did that to Draymond, like yeah, he baited yeah. Draymond into into getting a suspension, um, in that game five of the finals a couple of years ago. And, you know, sometimes that's that sort of psychological warfare actually has an impact. Mm. So. Speaking of warfare, uh, make or miss, uh, James Johnson will lose his cool on Ben Simmons if game five is uh, decidedly in favor of the Sixers. I mean, that's a very chippy series in that one. Both teams are very physical as it is. A lot of those games have been close, so it's been hotly contested. And there's not a lot of love between the two sides and James Johnson already had to be restrained from going after Ben Simmons Ben Simmons already said he's not going to do anything I don't know man James Johnson has uh he's 7-0 in, in in MMA fights so and apparently reports out that he can kick a basketball off the rim wow <laughs> so make or miss James Johnson will lose his cool on Ben Simmons um I'm gonna go with a miss just because I, uh, you know I'll put I'll put my faith in James Johnson, the human being that he that he is uh, he's not gonna go off on a rookie um, out of frustration. Only technically but, a rookie, all right? No, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Okay, <laughs> never mind. In that case, um, but yeah, no. I mean, I, look, the guy's a veteran. He, yeah. he definitely is not the kind of guy that you would want to mess with. Um, he, he's probably in like the ninety nine point nine percent percentile of nba players i would least want to mess with it's like him and steven adams yeah <laughs> like he's he's way up there so um i feel like i don't know if ben simmons is smart uh he'll he'll just kind of try and avoid that confrontation and and i hope that james johnson won't do anything rash yeah i actually think james johnson is in a class of his own when it comes to like <laughs> NBA. i'm serious like I, yeah, yeah i just think he's in a class of his own he's definitely the best not, prepared not wanting to mess with an nba dude but 
Uh, yeah, I'm going to go miss only because I, like Joe said, I have enough faith in him. The one thing, too, with James Johnson is over the last couple of years and in Miami, especially, he has seemed to mature. Definitely. And, and you can, he seems to be a lot more focused on basketball. He's turned himself into a very good all-around player mm-hmm. and a very valuable piece of right, the heat. Right, right. Um, I just think he's got enough going for him where, like, okay, maybe he might lose his cool and, like, shove him. Like, I don't think he's going to do anything. Right suspension worthy and if he does it'll be like one game at the beginning of next year i could live with that you know that's what i mean though right <laughs> yeah what was uh Giannis like like uh roundhouse kicking uh mike, mike Dun- dunleavy yeah, in the yeah, chest yeah. In, in like that game six blowout <laughs> and he got i think he got suspended for the first yeah. game of the next season for that the one thing that might keep the sixers out of the east final is james johnson going ham on these guys tonight and i don't mean it's like stealing a game i mean like taking a soul from that team <laughs> and them not being able to recover that's the thing yeah i think uh, one of the things you learn in all <laughs> mixed martial arts and all sort of uh, uh, those types of practices is about self-control, really, and self-defense. And so, so I mean, if anyone can control themselves, it should be James Johnson. But, I mean, also at the same time, like, the Sixers definitely do have a lot of aggravating players between Simmons and Embiid. And if things get tight, man, we've already seen, you know, some confrontations happen. Uh, that game is over and, you know, James Johnson is out there and Ben Simmons does some hot-dogging or whatever. I mean... I don't know, man. Something could happen. All right. Next one. Make or miss. Jabari Parker is the swing factor between the Celtics and the Bucks. Jabari was really, really good in games three and four. I'm actually going to go half make because I think Jabari Parker and Thon Maker okay. together on the court. If okay. you look at this series, when those two guys have been on the court together, uh-huh. the Bucks have been very good at their best, basically. Uh, Thon Maker had a really... Don't make a strong game four. Yep. Didn't put up the numbers Jabari did, but... Uh, yeah, like five blocks. Great. Yeah, five yeah. blocks. I think that was maybe even in game three. But game four, uh, he had another big game. And Don Maker, one thing um, he was able to do in his rookie year was shoot and be basically a stretch five. And then he had a really bad shooting year this year. But it's kind of come back to life a bit in his limited playoff minutes so far. So I think... Um, yeah, I think Jabari should be out there. And I also think Don Maker should be getting more minutes. I think the two of them on the court, the Bucs have been really good. Yeah. I'm going to go with a miss just because I think, look, Jabari has been really good the last couple of games. I think, you know, the biggest jump that we've seen from him is at the defensive end. Like, he, he's really ticked up his, like, his intensity at that end of the floor, and that's made a huge, huge difference. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I feel like I'm still going to trust the, you know, 200 and whatever game sample of him being piss poor at that end rather than the last two games. True. And, you know, he was a non-factor in games one and two. He was a factor in game three and four. Um, but... If you're going to go and say that, like, he's the swing factor, then I feel like you can go and say that, like, anybody else could be the swing factor in the series. You know what I mean? I don't feel like Jabari okay. is the key to unlocking the series necessarily for the Bucks. Um, it's obviously really helpful for them if he plays well, but I don't have enough faith that he's going to be able to carry it over to say, like, this is the guy who can change the outlook of the series. I mean, for Boston, like, they have Marcus Smart coming back, and, like, could that be the swing factor in the series? Absolutely. Could Aaron Baines be the swing factor in the series? Sure. Like, could John Henson, could... Any number John of people- Henson was definitely the swing factor in favor for the Celtics. Because when he's been out, uh, <laughs> I the Bucks have been playing way better. Okay. Also uh, yeah, you're right. John Henson actually did play well. I'm sorry. H- Henson played all right. I just um, think that they're better small, like without a center. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's tough to say. Like they, they're definitely way better offensively. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and and I'm the one who's been banging that drum, saying like their best lineups are with Giannis at the five. Um, and Cash kind of contradicted me, saying these lineups have been awful all season. They they have not been able to defend at all. Um, and they've gotten bullied uh, in the post, and, and they have like a 45% rebound rate. So the Celtics have done a really good job taking advantage of those small lineups. And 
again, like I, I think for those small lineups to work most effectively, Jabari probably needs to be a part of them. Uh, he needs to be shooting well and he needs to be defending well. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, like he could be a swing factor, but I just don't like, I think that's too much of a swing factor to be like, this is, this is like the X factor in the series. Um, I think there are a lot of different players who, who could, you know, have just as much uh, of an effect on the outcome as he does. So mm. um, I don't look at him and, and think that like, he's the one guy who could, uh, who could affect the outcome. Honestly, the only thing is, I, I'm just rooting for Jabari at this point because he's really like lost his like. I don't want him to go the same way as Jaleel Okafor or anything like that. He's like more adaptable to today's NBA than Jaleel Okafor. Like Okafor is completely a relic of the past until he changes his game. But um, yeah, I mean Parker's fought back from those two devastating ACL injuries. I mean he's already talked about the fact that he's lost his role. He's coming off the bench now, and this is a player that we thought, you know, when he was drafted, that he could be the best player in that draft along with. Uh, Wiggins and Embiid, and obviously right now it's not close. Embiid is the far and away the best player at that group. But you know he's he's talented. He's 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 coming up on free agency. Like if he has a good run, like and we know he's talented, right? We know he's really talented. Like the guy he, he was compared to was Carmelo Anthony, and like Carmelo is gonna. I mean, as much as we we we, we trashed Carmelo earlier this year, this is Carmelo in season fifteen. This is not what Carmelo was before, and so um, I'm I'm rooting for Jabari. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's a make just because. You know, if someone can just be the third score, and if it's because clearly it's not going to be Eric Bledsoe, <laughs> you know, if someone could just be the third score for Middleton and um, Giannis, like it can be a very competitive series, and it's already been um, two-two. So, last thing, um, this is not about the, this is just not about the Eastern Conference, but we had to mention it. Um, the Houston Rockets, the fact that the, make or miss, the fact that the Houston Rockets put up a fifty-point performance. Is that in that's indicative of what the Rockets have going forward? <laughs> in the sense that they're just going to be putting no, no, fifty no. point quarters. All it's the just time? it's just a reflection of like the type of firepower they have. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a make. Like the, the whole series leading up to that quarter had been pretty disappointing. I think for Houston, even in the games they won, their offense hadn't been clicking at all, uh, which was really surprising because they were playing a very poor defensive team in the in the Wolves, who they had absolutely shredded in the yeah, regular season, yeah. and. For whatever reason, their offense just wasn't quite clicking. A lot of it was just missing shots. Um, a lot of it was uh, the Wolves like being, I think, pretty disciplined at the defensive end, and the Rockets like not really being able to get out in transition that much because uh, the Wolves are a really low turnover team. Um, and then that quarter hit, and it was just like an absolute avalanche and a manifestation of I think like the, the perfect distillation of the Rockets' ideal. Like everything worked. They were playing really good defense and, and getting runouts off of misses, mm-hmm. um, and then I think, you know, the key for them was just, like, getting into their sets really, really quickly at the offensive end, attacking switches. Like, Harden in that first half had, had gotten switched on to Cat a bunch of times and just settled for step-back threes. And in that third quarter, he was, like, making a concerted effort, like, when he got switched onto him to take him to the rim. Um, and once he started doing that, then, like, Cat was giving him a little more space. And then he started to be able to, like, hit those step-back threes. Um, Chris Paul was getting in on the act. They were, they you know, pushing the pace and gang rebounding and... You know, it, it came together in what was basically a perfect quarter of basketball. And obviously, you know, that's one in a million. They're not going to have quarters like that again. But that, at the end of the day, is like what they're capable of, uh, more so than what we saw from them, you know, in the first, what, uh, 14 quarters of the series. Yeah. I, I think Joe nailed it. I just think it was a little bit of everything. And I, the thing that I thought was cool about it, too, is it wasn't like, like they were moving the ball, don't get me wrong, and they were splashing threes. But there was also a lot of isolation play in that third quarter. And it's just, mm-hmm. again, a testament to, you know, iso ball obviously isn't ideal. But when you've got isolation talents like James Harden and Chris Paul, it's more than fine. 
Exactly, exactly. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. We're going to come back another end, and we're going to talk more about Russell Westbrook in our playoff flashback. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. We are doing um, the playoff flashback moment, and we're going to look back on Russell Westbrook. And, of course, it's it's not a positive memory for Russell Westbrook whatsoever, and it's not a positive memory for Thunder fans. And in retrospect, especially with the way OKC has sort of fallen from this point onward, it was a really painful turning point. But Patrick Beverly injuring uh, Russell Westbrook, whether it was intentional or not. I mean, maybe I'll just start here. But in the 2013 playoffs, uh, in the first round, game two, the Thunder were already up one nothing. They had actually gone up to win that game, so it was actually already a 2 nothing. um you know, series lead after that, but it was coming up on the timeout. Westbrook bringing the ball up over half court. He's about to call timeout. He does call timeout, and in the split second when he calls timeout, Beverly tries to reach for the ball, and he bumps into Westbrook's knee, and then Westbrook ends up having a torn meniscus, and he needs surgery, and he doesn't play the rest of that series. Cash, let me just start with you. Do you think that was a dirty play by Beverly? No, I think it was um, very on brand for Beverly, who is a pest and who plays hard, but look, Russell Westbrook makes those types of plays all the time. Mm -hmm. He took a very dangerous dive near James Harden's ankles and knees just a few weeks ago on national TV. Um, Other point guards, like teams will, um, smart point guards like Chris Paul, Kyle Lowry, even Westbrook himself, they will sometimes make it seem, and the coach wants a timeout, and they'll kind of take their guy off the dribble and get an easy layup out of it. Mm -hmm. The Andre Miller special. Yes, and but those same point guards are also always on high alert because they know that they do it. And if you watch Russell Westbrook, he hounds. Point guards that are about to call a timeout the exact same way. He plays with the exact same kind of ferocity that Patrick Beverly plays. I don't think it was a dirty play. I think it's a play Westbrook would have made himself. It was just very unfortunate the way it came out. Okay. Yeah, I mean, really interesting kind of pivot point for that Thunder team. Obviously, they they still had other opportunities. But they had just come off that finals run. It really looked like they were going to go back there. Even Mm -hmm. after making that pretty disastrous Harden trade, they were better than they had been the season prior. Like, they were easily the best team in the West that year. Right. And arguably had been the best team in the league, even though that was the year that the Heat went on that 27-game win streak. Um, I don't know that they were any better than the Thunder were that season, and it looked like we were headed toward a mismatch, uh, sorry, a rematch uh, in the finals that year. And then, you know, they get routed by the Grizzlies in the next round because uh, Durant basically has to do it all himself, and they just didn't have enough help. So... Um, that was where, like, I think they really started to see the effect of that Harden trade. They hadn't seen it all throughout that season. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know how much better they would have been that season had they had James Harden because they already had these two ball-dominant guys who um, were, were doing, you know, more than enough to carry their offense to being, you know, I, think, I don't remember where they ranked that year, but it was either number one or number two, number two. In, in offensive efficiency. So um, I don't know that he would have that Harden would have made that team that much better. But suddenly Westbrook goes down and you don't have any help for Durant. And then it's like, oh man, maybe it would have been good to like have another like incredible creator. Um, <laughs> maybe to... it'd be good to have a future MVP on the roster. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously we know the rest. They never make it back to the finals, uh, despite having kind of opportunities to do so. Uh, injuries sort of keep cro- cropping up at really inopportune times. And, uh, and that core never manages to make it all the way back. Yeah, it's, it's really sad when you look at that series, especially for OKC, because like, that was supposed to be a generational, dynastic uh, type of run by them, and it just never came to be. It must be very frustrating as a Thunder fan to understand 
like how much talent was on that roster at one point in time and just for all that to fall apart really like that was their chance if they were going to win a title which let's be real they're not going to win a title this year if OKC was going to win a title over this entire run that was the season because well either that one or the year before but even the year before they were really young they hadn't necessarily gelled and clicked together but like they had such a good season and um you know like Westbrook was was really good that year he was I think the first year really that he really like became an all-NBA type of guard and for him to go down in game two of that series, for him to miss that, um, you know, the rest of the playoff run, for him to, like, you know, not be there, and Reggie Jackson's there instead, and then Reggie Jackson starts having problems because he now thinks he's the man, and, like, then him and Westbrook started, like, beefing and stuff. Like, it, it was so many issues came from that, just that one injury, um, that I think in retrospect we look back on it, and we, yeah, we do think negatively of Patrick Beverly, even though I think it was mostly a fair play as well. But 2014, you know... Westbrook gets hurt again. Ibaka misses some key games against the Spurs. That team could have made the finals and won it all. They didn't. Uh, in 2015, KD breaks his foot. Russell Westbrook gets hurt again. Again, recurring knee issues. Um, and, you know, they missed the playoffs that year with Westbrook leading the team. And then they fire their head coach, Scott Brooks. They bring in a new head coach. They had a 3-1 lead against the Warriors. They blew that. <laughs> they were fully healthy for that game uh, in that series. And then they, that summer they lose KD. And, you know, yeah, Westbrook gets... MVP honors he gets two straight years of triple doubles but they haven't done nearly as much ever since and that was really the year they had the chance to uh to, to win it all so to just to put into perspective how good that team was that year that mm-hmm. first year after Harden that we're talking about before Russ got hurt one of only 20 teams ever to win 60 plus and post a point differential over nine That's crazy. and to put it in perspective they had a plus 11 net rating that year this year's Rockets are plus 8.5 just to kind of give you an indication of yeah. how dominant that team was all year. Yeah. Yeah. No, it looked like they were going to win like two, three titles, man. And they just never did because of injuries. I mean, that's, yeah, they're they're like a really good cautionary tale, yes. I think, for, for just like trying to project out into the future and, and right. not really ever knowing what's going to happen. Um, I feel like the Sixers right now are probably, you know, the, the sort of contemporary incarnation of what that team was. This team that just has this incredible assembly of young talent that you just think, like, if they keep this core together, like, there's no reason this isn't going to be a championship contender for years and years and years. And you just never know mm. how it can or will yeah. fall apart. Um, we take success for granted in sports. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This is why when James Johnson injures Ben Simmons with the roundhouse <laughs> kick, it's going to be a real issue for them. We're going to look yeah. back on that moment in next year's playoff flashback. <laughs> Throw in the Philly crowd, and we might have the second Alice in the Palace. Tonight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. Yeah, that is crazy. A lot of these crowds, even OKC and, and Utah, like there's so much bad blood right now. It's crazy. So Good stuff. It's, uh, it's been really entertaining to watch. Anyway, thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Um, again, we're going to get these out on Mondays. It's just a temporary scheduling issue. We can do it. Monday this week, but uh, they will come out on Mondays. Uh, and again, we're on Google Play, we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and please support the podcast by rating, reviewing, subscribing. And if you have any feedback, uh, feel free to hit us up on Twitter. Really, um, you know that's really the best way to reach us. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next Monday. <laughs>